Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm one of your hosts, Charles Sheeland. And I'm the other host, Asia Bonilla. We're back this week, moving into the second half of the series. We're starting book four of The Secrets of the Immortal, Nicholas Flamel. Today, we'll be discussing the first half of The Necromancer, which we think is Machiavelli's book, even though that doesn't really make any sense. So today, we'll be talking about chapters one through 33. Yep. Our crew is back in San Francisco, and basically, this reading is kind of a let's catch up with all of our characters, see where they are. But before we get into that, let's just go back to who we are. We're a new show on the Nerd Party Network. We're a podcast with the Nerd Party Network. And we're best friends. And we've been reading and rereading YA Lit from our childhood and our adolescence and sharing these books with each other. And like Asia said, we're currently reading The Secrets of the Immortal Nicholas Flamel by Michael Scott, which I originally read when I was in middle school. Yes, and we started the show with a series that I had read before and Charles read it for the first time, and now I've moved on to the Flamel books, which I'm reading for the first time. And as the newcomer to the series, I get to give a quick plot summary for anyone who needs a refresher of the main plot points of the reading. So jumping right into it, Nicholas and Paranel and the twins are all in San Francisco, and they immediately have a run-in with Scatty's twin sister, Aoife, I think that's what we said, how we pronounce it, and her friend, Neaton or Knighton? Neaton. Neaton. Okay. But ultimately, they all decide they are on the same side. Joan and Scatty are still stuck in the past with really no updates on them. And St. Germain, Shakespeare, and Palamedes are meeting up because Francis has a plan on how they're going to recover Joan and the Shadow. And that's all the things on the good guys. Machiavelli and Billy get off of Alcatraz and go to face punishment from Billy's master. And then the only character who actually has a fair bit of plot action is Dee, who is declared Utlaga or an outlaw. And then he ends up connecting with the immortal Virginia Dare, and they have a plan to defeat the elders. So I'll just quickly go ahead and give my impression of the reading. Like we said, or started to kind of say, is there's a lot of introduction, I feel like, to new things happening, but we didn't get any conclusions. It was just a lot of setup, but no follow through yet. I mean, we're only in the first half of the book. So I know I'm just looking forward to reading more because, you know, we still haven't really had any updates on Scatty and Joan, which I'm looking forward to. And I also want to know exactly how the Flamels are planning on destroying that entire monster army on Alcatraz. But I'm just looking forward to finishing the book because during this reading, I didn't really want to stop because we didn't really get any, we didn't get any conclusions. Yeah, there was definitely like a building tension energy to the reading. That was kind of my impression too, that I felt like there was a very palpable tonal shift in the books and the stakes. It kind of feels like, okay, we prepared you guys. We've given you enough initial entrance into the world. Now we have to decide how we're going to deal with this. Like we have two weeks left you know some magic, we're back together, like, what are the next steps? It kind of feels like we've entered the end zone, or at least, like, I know we haven't really, we're only in the second half, but there's definitely a change in the feeling, and I'll try to flag moments as we talk about them that kind of gave me that indicator, but yeah, I definitely want to keep reading because we, we teed up a lot, and more than usual, like, in the other books we had, like, sort of teeing up in the first half, but this one very much felt like It was just preparation for other stuff. So we'll go from there. Also, side note, Nicholas and Paranel don't know that there are monster caches on all continents. They just think it's the one in San Francisco. And they're like so ready to sacrifice themselves for the one in San Francisco. And every time they mention it, I was like, didn't the elders say that there are also monsters everywhere? Oh, yeah. Yikes. I forgot about that. Well, anyway. We'll get into the paradigm shift and all of that, but we can definitely start with a really big shift is that we find out that Scatty has a twin sister, Aoife. Yes, and she promptly captures Sophie and takes her away, which was quite dramatic. Yeah, very dramatic. We dive right into that action. And I love that Josh is chasing them and he gets a cramp in his leg and he has to dig in his heel 
because he has a like he has to do a calf stretch because he gets a cramp and like as you know if you listen to this podcast we're both dancers we both you know have to stretch and take care of our bodies and just digging into a calf stretch because you cramp up is it was just really funny and relatable moment to me oh i love how you just like spotlighted that i barely remembered but i i mean i imagine it in a very graceful way because, you know, as dancers, like, if we, like, finish a combination in class that, like, hurts our calves, we'll, like, naturally sort of slink into a calf stretch because just, like, something we'll, we'll reflexively do that. And the reading kind of gave us that, too, where Josh is, like, he's running, and then as soon as he's, like, oh, my God, I'm tired, he just, like, immediately sinks into the calf stretch. And I was, like, I don't know. It felt very relatable to me. Okay. Anyway, so, yes, we said we start with lots of action for the twins, but everything right now in this moment is pretty calm for D. He's just sitting, drinking tea, and planning his way of conquering the world. Yeah, he's drinking Earl Grey tea, which is the worst of black teas. I just wanted to point that out. Well, I wouldn't know. I, I don't like tea, <laughs> so it would all be gross. Also, British breakfast, English breakfast, is the best black tea, and he's... From the UK. Anyway, sorry, my bad. Anyway, I just noted how I love how Dee and Machiavelli are being forced to work together again because now they're both failures and outlaws. So, like, Dee calls Machiavelli like, oh, can I get your help? Can I get a favor on something? I just thought that was funny. Yeah. We get the – we get a pretty long, like, Dee kind of mopey chapter. and But he asks himself a bunch of questions, which I was wondering too, and I'm sure you were – because he's talking about the other two elemental swords, Durandal and Julius. And he's like, why didn't they fuse? What's going to happen when he brings combined Excalorant to them? And then he gets all smug when Doc Machiavelli's like, oh, I failed my mission too. Yeah, and well, that's just Dee's personality. Because even though he failed too, he's probably just happy that he's not the only failure. That Machiavelli, who is also a great you know, magician and stuff, he's also a failure. Yeah. I was just like, I don't know if I would be as smug, but you're absolutely right. It's just, it's D's character to that. But it's funny that they are hedging their bets because they're both like, in case we like get, you know, left out in the cold, at least we have each other and we can rely on each other down the line. And we do find out, because we talked at this last episode a little bit, we do find out that D chose his aura to smell like sulfur after the Crossworld Shadow Realm of Shabalba. And it's like we discussed last episode, very dramatic of him. He's like, I wanted the most dramatic scent. And then he's like, the crossroads shadow realm. That's the one. And we find out that he's been declared Utlaga, which means outlaw by the elder council or the elders writ large. And the most recent person to be declared Utlaga by the elders was actually Mars Oltor. So Dee's like, ooh, I'm cool like an elder. <laughs> but let's go ahead and just stick with Dee because... Like we said, he definitely has the most interesting plot line this reading, and he meets up with Virginia Dare, and it's clear that they look like they're um, going to be longtime evil buddies. So, Charles, could you give us a little bit of a background on Virginia, both in the real world and the Flamel world? Because I know when I read her name, I didn't know who it was. I thought you'd never ask. Also, side note, I love they meet up in Covent Garden, it's, like, my favorite place in London, and she's, like, playing her flute just for, like, for like cash. And I love that area. Like, you get on the Piccadilly, Piccadilly line right from Heathrow Airport, and you just go straight into Covent Garden, and you go see a show, or you get food, you go shopping. Clearly, I am travel-deprived because of the pandemic, but I love Covent Garden. So when they were there, it made me really happy. But Virginia Dare... Not to be confused with Virginia Woolf, because I definitely did that the first time I read this book in middle school. But Virginia Dare was the first English child born in a New World English colony. So she was born in what was the Roanoke colony, considered the lost colony, because it didn't really catch on. But technically, she was born in what would have nowadays been North Carolina. But because Roanoke, the city, or there's a famous city in Virginia, which is my home state, is there's a town called Roanoke in my home state of Virginia, and her name is Virginia. So I'm sure I like learned about her in Virginia state history at some point. And I was doing a little more research for the pod beyond that knowledge. And the lost colony, Roanoke colony, was on Roanoke Island, which is in Dare County, North Carolina, 
presumably named after Virginia Dare because a lot of things in that area of North Carolina are actually named in honor of her because she was the first English-born child in the New World colonies. I think I've got that right. <laughs> I mean, it's like kind of like a white person history telling yeah. of the situation because it's like, well, there had been people living there before. There had also been Scandinavian and Norse people who'd had children there before. And also the Spanish had also gotten to the New World before. But Virginia Dare was important for white people U.S. history because she was the first British one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, for our series, let's just bring her back to fantasy. She is special because she actually had an elder master and she killed them, which means that no one or at least none of the main elders can take away her immortality. There's a, like, maybe they could, but basically they don't because she's kind of, well, she's vicious. She can kill elders, so you got to be scared of her. But she kind of operates like a lone wolf. But she's gotten, she's survived by, like, getting rid of her master and therefore getting to be immortal kind of on her own terms. And we find out that she's pretty power-hungry, conniving, and she's kind of crazy because she's, like, all in with D pretty quickly. And she has a very scary flute that she can use. Well, thank you for that background i guess but yes i do agree that she is she does seem quite scary and it makes sense why i guess she would partner up with d like because initially my since we only kind of meet her for a second before she agrees to help d i was kind of like what's her motivation why would she put herself in a position where d has lots of enemies like not even just the elders like everyone's coming after him But as we can see, she's probably fearless because she has killed her master elder. So I thought that was interesting. But it was good for the plot for Dee to know he's going to need a partner in crime in order order to fulfill his plan. Like, he wasn't going to be able to do it on his own. But we can go ahead and just quickly cover the whole moment in Covent Garden because you nerded out about it. But essentially, all the cucubits? Oh, God. Cucubits. Cucubits? Yeah, that was right. Cucubits. Cucubits. That sounds like not yeah. a real word. Anyway, the like. I don't think it is. Were they the. They were like the wolf people, right? Yeah, they're like half something, half werewolf. I can't. I can't keep all these monsters straight. There's too many of them, and we only interact also with them. Also, because for a they just kind of sounded like they were vicious humans. Like, they're like a little more animalistic humans. It's not like the ones that, like. That have, like, significant... Like, it's not like the were-dogs, like the Torque Madra, because those, like, specifically turn into animals. Like, the cucubus just kind of sound like brainless, big humans. It's really hard to keep track. But anyway, those things, they're <laughs> about to attack D and the elder Odin, who hates D because he was in love with Hakate, has his evil crows, who are also gonna attack and are watching him. But then... Like we said, Virginia Dare comes to save the day and she uses her flute basically to knock everyone out. Yeah, and something that you mentioned, like why would Virginia ally with him? I think that's something that I probably didn't realize the first time I read it, but thinking about like we know that Dee has a lot of enemies, she has to have a lot of enemies or at least no one likes her. Like because she's clearly vicious and kills people, so no one on the good side would like her. And... The dark elders can't like her either because she can kill them. So it makes sense that she's probably, like, already pretty... She has basically as many enemies as D. They might not be as active as D's enemies right now who are like, we must destroy him. I wouldn't say she is the same because I think what D even says is, like, how how she stayed alive and, like, survived is because she hasn't chosen a side. Like, she always just stays neutral, so that also would... She's always kind of, yeah, Stays anonymous. in the middle, kind of probably stays to the side, doesn't get involved in things, which can be good for survival skills because then you don't make any enemies, you don't piss anybody off. But she's definitely, like, she's clearly a strong character, but just also very selfish and, like, focusing on herself. Yeah. And it does seem like part of why... I mean, what she says for why she helps D is because he promises he'll give her the human world... And that they will rule it basically together once they conquer it. And she threatens him saying that if he does not keep his promise, she will hurt or kill him. So it's clearly like more of a transactional alliance as opposed to like forming a bond. But. And I could already see an issue popping up because when you have two very selfish people 
And they're like, we're going to rule together. I'm like, how well is that going to work? Even if you do manage to get your crazy planet through, like, are you really both going to be happy being co-equal rulers of this shadow realm? Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I know D, I mean, since we know D obviously a lot better, he always has multiple plans going on and how he's going to turn on people. But I hope, I just hope he doesn't underestimate her because she does seem very, very dangerous. And we know he likes to underestimate people. Literally every time he sees the females, he's like, I've got you cornered now. And they're like, 600 years later, no, you don't. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they're definitely using each other out of convenience and mutual gain, but I'm sure there'll be another shoe with them. That's going to drop. Let's leave them because we'll save their master plan for a little later on. Let's go over back to Josh and his calf stretch because the next thing I wrote down, you know how we discussed that there's at least one thing each episode that we both write down and I know which one it's going to be. I think that it's coming up. So I want you to get into it. Okay. Well, first I wanted to mention, I guess before we do that, is that I think it's important that Josh points out that he look he pulls out the two pages of the codex that he has like under his shirt when he changes and he realizes that by touching the page he's able to stop the words from moving around and I thought this was important because I mean I he doesn't make this connection because as we point out has pointed we pointed out many times and Sophie points out again later that Josh is kind of slow but Nicholas made a comment earlier in the series saying how that the he believes the codex belongs to the twins that they're the rightful owners of it so it would make sense that he would be able to manipulate it in a way that the flamels never could but he makes this when he makes this revelation he of course gets annoying because he goes from being super worried about his sister and like quickly trying like changing to go find the flamels to get her but when he makes this revelation about how he can control the codex and how he was able to form the arm around him when he goes to try to save Sophie he's like oh he must be more powerful than her since he can manipulate his aura without any training and I was like why is everything a competition for him he literally goes from I'm worried about my sister to wow I'm so glad that I'm better than her like she's not even there she could be hurt and you're still over here thinking about how you want to be better than your sister and more powerful than her like that literally just it doesn't make any sense to me like ridiculous Yeah, that was a thing I wrote down. I was like, Josh forming the aura, and he immediately jumps to, well, because I did it untrained, I must be more powerful than her. I was like, why why does your brain go there? It's like when Sophie said that she got getting elemental magics makes her complete, and he's like, well, you don't need me anymore. I'm like, she didn't say that. Like, how does you forming, which you saw her form the armor out of her aura, so you knew that was a thing that you could do. It's not like you were, like learned about the aura on your own and then was like, look at this cool thing I made up. You've seen a bunch of people use their aura to shape to shape their aura into armor. I don't know. It's just like it's one of those thoughts. I, and I guess it is because like we're getting his thoughts like he's at least not saying it out loud. Well, in this instance, he's not saying it out loud because he probably just didn't get the opportunity to. He's alone. If he said it out loud, you think he's crazy, too, because he was alone. But. Because I'm thinking, like, those are just one of those things that it's, like, if you thought that, like, because, I mean, when you think about it, like, in this moment, you don't know what's happened to Sophie. She could really be in serious danger. And your thought is that you're glad that you're better than her. Like, I don't know. That's just, like, not good. Like, I would be ashamed if that was my thinking, if that was my thought process while my sister was missing. Me too. But... I don't know. This is, I mean, we get into this a little bit later about how I do think there's a lot of foreshadowing that... Right now, I'm predicting that this book, and I feel like Charles has kind of hinted at it. Like, I feel like there's not necessarily going to be a happy ending that, like, I feel like the twins are going to be turned against each other. Or even if there's, maybe there could be a happy ending, but I definitely think there's going to be a moment where Josh is going to turn. I mean, unless there's going to be a huge plot twist and Sophie turns. So, like, I just, based on their character setups, I just feel like that can't happen. But right now, Josh is just, I don't like Josh. But when did I ever like Josh? I'm making faces right now because I'm like, I have tried so hard not to spoil anything also because I don't remember what happens. I mean, I do think that there is definitely something dramatic coming up for sure. And I say that all the time. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be how it ends. It's just like, I think because there was one episode over where I talk about 
I mentioned something about Josh betraying and you made a face because you have a very expressive face. And so I was like, oh, maybe that's going to be a part of it that he is. Because, you know, I expect this is more of like a children's book. Like we might get hints that he's going to betray, but like, would he really do that? But we won't talk about it too much because we, I have, I felt that more. We'll get to it. There's, we both had a lot of notes later on about foreshadowing and I think we should save it for then. But yes. Yeah. So anyway, moving on, let's quickly mention Scatty because she and Joan have literally, I think, one chapter on them. And which was, you know, kind of disappointing because, you know, in the last book, we barely hear from her. And then now we barely hear from them again. But it's okay, I guess. But basically, the only thing we get is that they are just basically trying to debate whether to fight a pack of saber-toothed tigers or run away because, you know, they're just chilling a million years in a million years ago in San Francisco, just waiting to be rescued, I guess. So disappointing. It's really disappointing. But at least Scatty is a boss. She handles them. But then they find out there's like the also the mega monster, which we haven't met yet. So we'll see if she can handle that saber tooth tiger. But yeah. Yeah. I was a little disappointed, but not surprised when Scatty was like, I prefer dogs over cats. Like, it was a little sad for me, but it's okay. I mean, who I hope does? we get more I mean, of her. everyone should prefer dogs over cats. They're a superior animal. Anyway. I prefer cats over dogs, and we all know that, and they're much better. But anyway, we get Scatty knocking out a saber-toothed tiger, and I hope we get more Scatty knocking out prehistoric animals, because it was pretty funny, at least, the scene with her and Joan. Which actually serves as a good segue to the St. Germain plotline. Yes, yeah, so... We again, this is something that's set up, but we don't get a conclusion. But Francis is going to meet with Palamedes' master to try and get Joan back because he doesn't want to live without her, which I thought was a really cute moment, a very awe moment when he talks about how he doesn't want to be immortal and live without her. He's like, I'd rather give up my own mortality and find her than be immortal and not have her with me. But in all seriousness, we find out that Palamedes' master is Tammuz. That's how I would say it. The green man. How they, they call him the green man, which, what does that mean? Who is that? And apparently he has the power to travel through time. That's the only details we get. Yeah. Francis being prepared to give up his mortality with Joan is really special also because Joan can't give up hers. And we know that because she, like hers is related to her blood. She can't really turn that off. Whereas Francis... We don't know how he got his immortality, but we know that it's not, like, a permanent thing. Like, it's something he earned. Like, he says it's an immortality potion. We're all kind of skeptical. But it's really moving that he's, you know, ready to do it. And he's kind of the whole reading. He's got, like, a little bit of a lover-crazed energy. But I don't want to say crazed in, like, a manic way. It's, like, very focused. Because it's a very nice contrast to the Francis that we got in The Magician, where he's very aloof. He's like, I missed the whole battle in my house because I was listening to rock music. And now he's like, no, like, this is the love of my 500-year life, and I need to find her. Yeah, I like that. And as for Tammuz, I had never heard of him before this series, which is rare because, unsurprisingly, I was a nerd. And I was familiar with most of the gods before I read the series. Like, at least I knew, like, Odin is a Nordic god, something about loving nature or something like that. But I'd never heard of Tammuz before I read the series. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think I looked it up when I first read it. But because this is a podcast, I did look it up for you. And Tammuz was a Mesopotamian god of fertility. And he was old before Christ. So according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, his followers were like four or 5,000 years ago. So he's like a very ancient god. Like, if you think of, you know, Christ as being approximately 2,000 years ago, like, his followers were, like, two up to 2,000 years before that. So, he's a really, really old god in Mesopotamia, so the current area of Iraq, the between the two rivers. Wow, I wonder, like, <laughs> thank you, yes, thank you for that. Well, you said he's a god of fertility, what, how does that give him the power to travel through time? That's what I'm curious about. Because, you know, um... Who's to say? Uh, I just... He oh, also had, like, Aoife, a bunch of other cool powers, but... Well, I'm just saying because, like, Aoife, Scatty's twin sister, she's talking about how she wants to go to Kronos, which we know Kronos, obviously, from Percy Jackson. He's 
literally a god of time. A titan of yeah, the god of time. Like he's a titan, whatever. But like, so I'm just curious as to like what is Tammuz's like relation to being able to travel through time. But we won't get it till the second half of the book. I did read a long Encyclopedia Britannica article on him, and he had a couple other powers. A lot of them had to do with like fertility and trees and family. I didn't really get a lot that related to time, so I didn't bring it back. But maybe we'll get some answers. Also, to be perfectly honest, I don't think this plotline goes very far. Slash, I don't think it's like a long plot. So probably because they're gonna fail anyway, and like Eva's <laughs> gonna actually save Scatty. <laughs> well, either way, it didn't. It didn't impress upon young Charles that it was important to know who Tammuz was. So leave it at that. <laughs> okay, so. Let's see. We started to cover everyone except Billy and Machiavelli. And we find out at least Machiavelli and Billy aren't just going to be trapped in Alcatraz. But we do find out that they have both been summoned to meet Billy's master. So that's kind of exciting because we're going to meet Billy's master and get some info, but we still don't really get that much. Yeah. And his master, as we find out, is Quetzalcoatl, um, who's an... (laughs) When they said the first name, I mean, when they said all the names, I just went, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how to say that. I'm definitely saying it wrong, but I was recently, over a year ago, I went on vacation and a work trip to Mexico. So I went to a museum. It's just funny to me how you took took the jumble of letters and made something out of it. Well, que, Q-U-E, so, T-Z-O, coatl. I don't know. I, 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 I did it phonetically. Okay, now say the next the next name. Kulkulkan. <laughs> that one's ridiculous. That's why I was like, it's Billy's master. I'm not referring to anything as well, well, Or the feathered he, serpent. When he said that, also because I knew, was familiar with the name Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, because he was like, call me this. And I was like, that's not any better. <laughs> I know. That's what, it, it blew my mind when he was like, go, I'll go by Kulkulkan. I was like, that's way harder to say than Quetzalcoatl. But I think Quetzal's, and I could be completely wrong. I'm sorry, Mexico City Museum of Mexican History, that I'm butchering what I learned. But I think the Quetzal's are really cute little birds. And Quetzalcoatl is like the feathered serpent. And his plumage, he's a snake, but his he has feathers like the Quetzal birds. I might be wrong, though. He's a Native American Aztec god, though. That That is who he was. And I wrote down because, I mean, I was a little confused because, like, they said he's the feather serpent. So I'm like, he's a snake, but with feathers? Like, I can't yes. again, can't imagine these crazy monsters. I mean, that was that's Aztec mythology, though. That's not this world. That's at, Like, that was truly Aztecs. But anyway, I did write, since Philly's master is a feathered <laughs> serpent, I said maybe he'll like Machiavelli since he literally smells like snakes. I just, but I mean, and he does seem to like Machiavelli. He does like Machiavelli a lot, yeah. Because he ends up saying, I'm going to spare him anyway. Yeah, no, I think that he vibes with Machiavelli for sure. But I did not, when I read that, I did not think, oh, there's a snake affinity. But again, Feathered Serpent, I already was like, oh, serpent, mm, gross. Even though I knew he was a human. Like, even though I knew he was, like, humanoid, like, human shape with Well, yeah, because basically, is he, like, a person, but then he's got this super long tail? Because I'm imagining, yes. like, what, like a 10-foot long tail, like, like almost like a train of a dress, like, going behind it, but then it has a whole bunch of feathers on it. Like, I just Correct. can't. That is Does- how I imagine him, too. But does he look like a person or does he have yes. like scales like a snake? No, I think he looks like a person. He said he they said he a... has like tan skin. Oh yeah. And then they like, said, Like I'm literally imagining like a Native American that Aztec would... with a tape with a tail. That would make sense because then when Billy's like, don't mention the tail, because it is just something like completely separate from the rest of his body. Well, I'm not this has a little bit of foreshadowing or like me almost skipping ahead. We're gonna talk about this next book in the warlock. But if you, you've probably noticed that a lot of the elders are, like, a little gross, like, a little transfigured. Like, Bastet is a beautiful woman, and then she has the head of a, go- of a cat. And Quetzalcoatl, human, but also a tail. Like... So they're disfigured. All I know is Bastet, like, that actually to me sounds terrifying. Actually, how I imagine her is, like, a tiny, like, skinny female body with like a giant like puss in boots from Shrek <laughs> cat head. That's what I imagine. But like huge. I'm talking about a giant head like a bobblehead. Like I don't imagine it to be like an I mean that's kind of how she's depicted in Egyptian body. mythology. I imagine a huge cat head like when they're sitting in the car. 
I imagine it's like almost like a mascot head. I imagine it to be Johnny Cannon. I mean, that's kind of how she is in Egyptian <laughs> mythology. I mean, it's not Puss in Boots. It's black and it, like very scary bunny ears that are really sharp. Also, I'm I'm like I'm saying like she would be kind of adorable, but also terrifying because its hair head is just so big. Like I don't know. I mean, it's kind of that's she exactly how I imagine her. Well, also yeah, for sure. I mean. We also I don't know, know that- where that came from, but that's how I see her. Yeah. And like when this is totally off, but when like in the last book, whatever, when Dee's like sitting in the car with her, and she's all close to him, I imagine like these giant eyes, like this giant, like the whiskers, like oh my god, like it would be scary because it's just so big. But also like you kind of want to pet it, you kind of want to like give it a scratch behind the ears. Oh, good. That's how I imagine yeah. it. I mean, again, if you look up an image of Bastet, it's not that far off. Bastet is black with, like, scary ears. But, like, her head is definitely oversized for the size body of a woman she has. I have to look it up. Also, like... No, this is not what I'm thinking. They just show, like, it's a body with, like, a right... Like, I'm talking about, like, <laughs> bobblehead, like, blown up <laughs> Like, ridiculous. Okay, back to my point about elders being gross. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're all good. That was really funny. <laughs> I laughed a lot. But Ariopanop, elder, is 100% spider. And Nereus, human, until he becomes an octopus on the bottom. So just keep that in mind. We're going to learn a little more about that in the next book. But Quetzalcoatl's tale is going to kind of be explained in the next book. And let's let's catch up the San Francisco storyline because it kind of at this point we kind of have a dramatic ending coming up for D, a sweet Francis ending, a very suspenseful Machiavelli ending. So we kind of just need to catch San Francisco up and then we'll go from there and do each ending. Sure. So we find out that Scatty and Aoife fought over a boy who died because they both refused to fight with him in battle and they haven't spoken about it for hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah, nice and dramatic, you know, as sisters do, though. And basically, we have Aoife and Niten and Sophie and Josh and Nicholas and Paranel. They're chatting and they're discussing how they're going to move forward because Aoife's like, all I care about is getting my sister back. And Nicholas and Paranel are like, well, maybe we should destroy the monsters. And Josh is like, I don't know how to tie my shoelaces. No, he's not (laughs) saying that. But that's kind of what I imagine his inner monologue being like all the time. And Josh and Sophie finally ask a good question that we, like, should, they should have asked a while ago. Because they're like, well, the Dark Elders can fix climate change. Why won't the Good Elders do that? Like, why won't they make the world better? And Paranel actually ask, answers it really well. She's like, basically, magic and elders solving the problems holds humans back. And it's, like, a fascinating thing to think about, that, like, magic, which is, like, advanced technology in many ways, actually prevents society from advancing technology. And I kind of, like, consider it, like, a true thought. Like, obviously, we can't compare it because we don't have magic in the real world. But I want to hear what you think about it, Asia, because this is, like, a pretty common theme in fantasy and sci-fi. Well, yeah, I definitely, I really liked how Paranel answered that question because it does seem like, yes, it would be true because the they explain, like, how, you know, when all the elders are living on the earth and they use magic to give everything to humans. The humans don't need to develop anything for themselves because they're being given. I mean, it's it's kind of like that idea when they say that, like, you don't just give a man a fish, you teach him how to fish. Because if you just give everything to the humans, they're never going to have to learn how to do anything on their own because they're like, oh, well, the gods are just going to bless us with food and no sickness. Like, so we don't have to develop different ways of dealing with those issues on our own. So I do think by kind of taking a step back, like, they say that they did in the book, they forced humans to kind of advance and become self-sufficient. Yeah, and, like, the example of Egypt is really good. Like, Egyptian society lasted for about as long as we've had Anno Domine, like, the 2021 year that we're in. And, like, think about the developments that society has just made since... Why are you laughing at me? Sorry, ignore me. Asia is laughing at me. This is a podcast. I'm in a giggly mood now because of what we talked about. So sometimes when you just say words, I'm just laughing at you. (laughs) Just ignore me. What word was funny? Egyptian? (laughs) 
Wait, what did you say? What did you say to describe our current time period? Anno Domine? Yeah, it just That's like... That's Latin for year no, of the I, Lord, no, I AD. Know. Like we're in 2021 AD. I know, I'm just in a giggly mood. <laughs> Apparently when I say things in other languages that I don't speak, it makes Asia laugh, adding that to the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to just throw them in like next episode, like out of nowhere. I'm just going to slip in a Latin phrase to try to catch her off guard. Okay. Send me Latin phrases via DM and I'll throw them into the podcast. Okay. But... <laughs> Goodness. But it's something that, like, a really good piece of, like, fantasy canon that a lot of people know is, like, Game of Thrones. And you ask, like, why is Game of Thrones this medieval world that's been living in medieval culture for 2,000-plus years or a couple thousand? I think it's, like, 2,000. But it's, like, because they have magic and magic and dragons and sorcery. Like, they basically hold society back because you're not relying on technology. And it's a really good argument, but it's also kind of, like, sad, like... We need to let humans advance so that they could, like, develop cell phones, but also we need humans to advance to, like, protect the world they've destroyed. I think it is interesting to think that I feel like another way of looking at it, like, I understand that argument because, obviously, if the elders are giving everything, but I think it would be interesting to talk about, like, if the humans could learn how to do magic, which I know, because they said, like, everybody has an aura, then they could advance in that way. But I feel like the mm-hmm. elders would still have to step back or they'd have to train them. They'd have to do something differently. But Yeah, it definitely couldn't be like elders subjugating humans anymore because that clearly won't work. Yeah. So anyway, moving on, we do find out that the Flamels are prepared to sacrifice themselves to destroy all the monsters on Alcatraz. And right now their plan is that they want to train Josh in fire and then destroy the monsters. Those are the priorities right now. And Sophie's like, why don't we just go get the codex from Dee's house? And then Flamella and Paranel are like, mm, no, I think we're just going to destroy the monsters instead. It's going to be too much work to get the codex from Dee. Which I understand because, I mean, Nicholas is literally like a dead man walking. Like he's got yeah. probably a couple days left. So he's- But again, if they just let Sophie and Josh get the codex with Niten and Aoife, but like, I they think, can do it. I think having the first priority being Josh being awakened in another- are not awakened learning another magic learning the magic of fire like because right now like josh is basically helpless like sophie is getting better but like they're still very untrained and like have no idea what they're doing so like i don't think that they should rely solely on the twins power especially because if they do too much they're just going to pass out anyway so i do understand right now their priorities and i understand their mindset of saying like they're just going to sacrifice themselves to destroy all the monsters because like you said before they don't know that there's monsters on every continent or whatever but they do know about this one and they're like paranel says she's like we can't just let this happen like if like their whole goal this whole time that they've been alive is to like save humanity so i feel like with this knowledge they're like that's the priority right now to make sure that doesn't happen i mean i definitely think it's like a noble pursuit i like strategically i just be like you could live longer with the immortality spell. But I get that it might be too much work to do that. Yeah. But anyway, we kind of have a bunch of similar kind of repetitive conversations on the boat, off the boat, and just lots of small group chats going on. But we do get a very intense Josh and Sophie conversation. Yeah, and Josh is back to being very anti-Flamel. He's like, I just don't trust them again. I'm like... They really, like, again, we know the old, the other twins, but they've explained that situation. Like, what is it that Josh would need? I, actually, it's kind of the point. There's nothing that you could say to convince Josh. No, yeah. Which I wanted to talk about this conversation. First, I wanted to point out that Sophie must obviously think Josh is slow because when he tells her how he's just realized in this moment how much they've lost, she says, she says, like, she doesn't say it out loud, but she thinks she's like, I came to that conclusion a long time ago. Like, what's taking you so long? <laughs> I just thought that was yeah, funny. No, he has no perspective. She's like, yeah, no, no worries. Like, prom is not going to be the same as it used to be. Like, how are you just, how is that just hitting you? Yeah. <laughs> but then Niten comes, comes over to like mention something. I forget. What does, oh, Josh. Well, Niten and Aoife and like. Nick and Perry are, like, having, like, an adult conversation, and they send the twins away, and then Niten is sent to come, like, get them back. Like, it was, like I said, it was, like, very much, the whole section kind of, like, gave us a setup to, like, have a bunch of individual conversations between two characters that we needed to have. 
Yeah, to, also just to get some, yeah, to get some answers. But I think Josh, like, he's like, oh, how do, oh, he, I think he says, like, how do we know we're on the right side? Like, we're fighting for the right side in this war. And the 10 says that how, you know, in both sides in a war, both sides think that they're right. You know, that's what keeps them going and fighting for their cause. And he tells the twins that really their only responsibility should be to one another. And for some reason, and also in the next conversation we hear, this just makes me think that they're going to end up on different sides. Because even though Sophie does agree with Josh that they don't trust the Flamels fully, to me, Josh is just way too infatuated with and very similar to D and like D's way of thinking. And I could just see him switching over, maybe not at the very end, but at some point really going for the other side. But I know with all that, I just said, if one of the twins is going to die in the end, it better be Josh. No spoilers from me. I'm trying to keep my face very impassive because I do have emoji expressive face, but I'm not going to spoil anything. But I do agree. Like, as I was reading it, the Niten conversation, even out of context of, like, what I know, what I don't know, how I know it's going to end, what's going to happen with both the the twins at the end, like, as I was reading it and the Aoife conversation we're about to get into, it felt very ominous because it's so much of stick together twins, trust your twins. When twins fall apart, things are bad. And I was like, that makes me as a reader, if I had been reading this for the first time, I would have, like, I would have, like you, I would have felt the same way. Like, this makes it feel like they're going to have the split up because we're getting so heavy handedly reminded that they should not split up. And, like, we find out that there are really bad consequences when twins split apart in this world. Like, Paranel flat out says to Aoife, like, Aoife's like, I stayed in this world because I love Scatty and I just want to be friends with her again. And Paranel's like, Scatty doesn't love you. And, like, one very icy of Paranel to just, like, lay it out flat like that. She's like, Scatty doesn't love you. And two, like, we find out there are really aggressive consequences when the trust between twins is broken. Yeah, I definitely saw that. And, I mean, at least Paranel, she kind of goes back, like, I think at the very end of their conversation when they're in the car, she turns to Aoife and she's like, we may, we might have misjudged you and for that I'm sorry. Because, like, based on from Aoife's point of view, it sounds like she just loves her sister. They made a mistake and she's been waiting. And she's got terrible communication skills. Yeah. And Aoife turns to Sophie and is like, what would you do if your twin like if josh betrayed you and you know at first she's like he wouldn't do that and like josh is like laughing like it's a joke and it's like they can't even imagine that happening and i mean obviously we've we've heard josh's inner thoughts we've heard the comments he's made to sophie he definitely has the inklings of like i could see that like he's not he's not just he's not completely and blindly devoted to sophie like that is not the case at all he is like he loves her cares about her wants to protect her but he also, like, I think we talked about this, I talked about this um, in a previous episode about how for him, it seems like he needs to be above Sophie or they need to be straight up equals or their their relationship is like in jeopardy because he does not like feeling less than her. And this whole time, this with Sophie being awakened first, like this is just constantly making him feel less than her. So I feel like all of that, like is probably maybe something that, He's always felt, because how they've talked about, Sophie's, like, mentioned how, you know, Josh has always been a loner. She's been the one with friends. Like, so it kind of seems like between the two of them, Sophie, you know, has kind of always been, like, the better twin, the more outgoing one, the more caring one. So, like, things that you think of in a, are better character traits. So there could be something in Josh that, you know, is festering way deep down that it's, like, he does, he's jealous and envious of his twin sister. And, like, this is just finally giving bringing everything to the surface and giving him the opportunity to betray her. So that's why I said, to me, it is kind of foreshadowing, since we had this whole conversation about it, that he might betray Sophie, which, you know, is just predictable because they he's, Michael Scott set it up well, that could happen. But it's also still obviously sad because they're twins. Like, you shouldn't be going against your twin sister. Yeah. And it's extra, like, I think another thing that we've talked about in previous episodes is kind of, that it's impossible for Josh to, like, at this point, at least, we have not seen anything that can break through to Josh. It's like we said, the Flamels can't say anything to make them trust. Like, Josh just will not trust them. They can explain the previous twins not good enough. They can show, look at D and his recklessness and his willing to destroy things. 
still not good enough for Josh. Like, in the same way we talked about how Josh, at one point, he wants to be completely equal. He wants everything to go back to being the same with Sophie. As the other hand, he's like, I love having powers and I want to be an individual. And I think that Josh, because he has those two motivations that are crossed, nothing is going to satisfy both of those. So that's why he can't, like, he wants to be equal with Sophie, but he also can't have her be better than him, even though, like, that would be a supportive thing to do. Like, because he actually has two different motivations running in his brain of, like, want everything to be normal, also love being an individual, he's acting irrationally. And therefore, nothing can convince him, nothing can change his mind, because he's operating from two opposite mindsets, and they're both taking over at different points. Yeah. We should talk quickly about what about Aoife and Scaddy a little more, because we find out that Aoife says, like, oh, she and Scaddy are much older than we thought so far. Yeah, she basically suggests that, you know, Scaddy said, like, she was 2,000 years old or something, and Aoife's like, we're much older than that. So... Going off of this, if we're just believing Aoife, you know, if Scatty really did betray Aoife and stopped loving her own twin sister, you know, lied about how old she is, kind of brings to the surface, like, maybe she lied about other things. But then at the same time, can we really trust Aoife? We just met her. Obviously, the Flamels have a really great relationship with Scatty. They think of her as a daughter. So I kind of, my theory at this point is that also, because based on we know, Scatty, you know, at least her 2,000-year life, that what she's talked about, she's helped humans and fought for humans. And how Aoife kind of describes is, is described as she kind of says, like, she does bad things, like, she's done really terrible things, like, not really clear who to who, but, like, she obviously seems kind of a little bit evil. So my theory is that maybe Scatty and Aoife, you know, both used to do bad things, were kind of maybe on the wrong side of history, and Scatty for whatever reason, decided that she didn't want to do that anymore. And the 2,500 years ago. Yeah, and the only way for her to move on from that lifestyle was to completely cut off her sister and separate herself from her. So that's kind of what I think based on what we have so far because, like I said, I do like Scotty's character and she, just the fact that, like, the Flamels really like her, I feel like she can't be that bad. So that's how I see it being. Like, that's what I assume they'll say the storyline is, but who knows? Also, you want to judge characters by their actions, and all the actions we've gotten from Scatty are selfless. Like, she may have done terrible things in the past, but she's been only selfless and completely driven by protecting the twins. And not in a, I want to train them, use them for my own goals. It's like, she's like, they are helpless in this world, and I've done everything I can to protect them. And that is really selfless. Like, what we've seen of Scatty is really noble, whereas from Aoife, we've just heard a lot of talk. Yeah, and also, I mean, the first thing we get from Aoife is she literally kidnapped Sophie, so, like, she can't be that great. She's willing to take what she wants. So, and for me, like, I just miss Scatty's character, so I'm looking forward to them, you know, rescuing them and her Mm kind of getting her voice back in the story. Yeah, also, like, the timeline of Scatty being 2,500 years old doesn't really make very much sense because that would, again, kind of mean that she'd only been around for, like, 500 years before Jesus. But we know that there have been human civilizations for way longer than that. And Scatty and Aoife, because they're next generation, they have to be born after the fall of Danutalus. But humans were already around when the fall happened. So, like, Scatty's age, like, if we think about the timeline, which I never did critically— and I first read it, or right this time, it didn't even make sense that she was 2,500 years old. Like, that didn't make any sense. But more importantly, like, it's not a big lie because we know she's immortal. Like, when you're immortal, what does adding a 1,000 or 2,000 years to your age, like, matter if you could theoretically live forever? Like, I guess for me, like, her lying about her age didn't matter to me very much because if she's immortal, she could theoretically live forever anyway. I mean, to be completely honest, when they said that she's like, we're way older than that, I was like, I don't even know how old they said Scotty was because I don't pay attention. Because it doesn't matter because you just think of her as an immortal being. Yeah, she's just old. Like, I can barely keep track of the immortal humans, how old they are. Because, I mean, we find out that Machiavelli is like, yeah, I've been alive since before the Americas were discovered. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't put that together. Because once they, once you find out they're immortal, it doesn't matter how old they are. Yeah. Because you're like. They've just lived a long time. Also, just yeah. the fact of, like, it would make sense that, like, from my theory, if Scatty was separating herself from her sister and wanted to move away from whatever past she was coming from, it would make sense that it's like she was reborn. So, of course, reborn. she would talk about herself. She wouldn't include those years from before. So, 
Yeah, that yeah. to me, like, doesn't... It didn't really actually bother me, but, like, obviously you have no, to look at, at both sides. But, like I said, I, I just want Scatty back. That's all, that's all that matters to me. Me too. Me too. We have one more conversation that we should cover before we wrap up the plot line. It's Paranel and Sophie. First off, Sophie starts this whole reading with, like, Paranel was always in charge. We just didn't know it. And we were like, well, we've known that because Paranel's a boss. And she's always bossing Nicholas around, and it's pretty awesome. But she has, like, the Medusa whip, and she has that box with Nicholas. Nicholas has a fancy box. We don't know what's in it, but she's kind of forcing Nicholas to bring him with it. I think I remember what it is. I think it's really cool. So I can't wait for that to get opened. But back to the conversation, Paranel first confirms that Endor was not trying to take over Sophie's body, which you and I both were like, that made no sense. And then Paranel's like, Nicholas can make mistakes, and that's okay. And it kind of sounded like Paranel was like, Nicholas kind of made a mistake every time he didn't fight D, but whatever. But yeah, Paranel's like, you're fine, Sophie. And Sophie's like, oh my goodness, thank God. Like, I was so tired trying to separate my memories. And you and I, both when we read it, we were like, that doesn't make any sense. As long as it's Sophie's body, she can separate her memories. It was just funny because how Paranel <laughs> talked about Nicholas, like, making mistakes. It was almost, you know, like, sometimes when, like, wives talk about their husbands, like, you know, sometimes he's just stupid. Like, I still love him, but he he makes mistakes sometimes. I just thought that was funny, like, how she talked about him. And That's exactly what it sounded like. Like, it is so clear, obviously, like, she wears the pants in the relationship and, like, she's in charge, which, you know, we love. Because especially... The twins wouldn't have gotten that impression necessarily because they didn't really have any time with her. Yeah. Yeah. Since she got kidnapped. But anyway, I also just liked how she was very straightforward and to the point with Sophie. And she, Sophie kind of is like, you know, she's kind of accusing her like, you knew we were twins all along. That's the reason why, you know, Nicholas hired Josh and you got the owner of the coffee shop to hire me. Like you knew. And she's like, why didn't, Sophie's like, why didn't you warn us? You could have warned us. And Paranel's just like, you know, if I would have warned you guys, she's like, I know that you, Sophie, like you would have still done everything that happened because based on your character, you're more empathetic. You care about people. Whereas Josh probably wouldn't have because he is a little bit more selfish. And Sophie even says she agrees because Josh ultimately isn't really brave. Like he's not, he's obviously probably growing to be once this has been forced upon him, but naturally he's just not. And also, I was just wondering, because <laughs> Paranel tells Sophie, like, don't tell Josh about, I guess, whatever memory comes to her brain about Prometheus. And I'm just like, what's going to happen to Josh when he learns fire magic from Prometheus? Like, is he going to get burnt or something? Because obviously, Sophie's experience with Francis wasn't bad. But Paranel makes a suggestion, like, Josh is not going to like it. I don't remember. I really don't remember what happens with Prometheus. So we'll have to see. But yeah, we definitely get the indication that it is not going to be good. So can't wait for that. And, but I think this is something really important that Paranel says, what you and I have been discussing on this podcast, that they really had no other choice than to look for the twins. Because as much as I wish they'd fought D, like they, someone else would have just been sent after them. But knowing like the future of the world, it relied on them finding the good twins. And Paranel and Nicholas both are like, yeah, of course it stinks that those twins died, but they all willingly went, underwent the awakening and because they understood the grasp. And th- if they were the twins of legend, it would have been worth it. And the same thing is like, it's worth it now because the Dark Elders, as we've seen, are more than willing to kill. So yes, maybe Nicholas and Paranel killed, let's say drastically, 40 twins. Again, not good. They shouldn't like, you know, be blasé about human life, but they aren't. They take it very seriously. They still like, are weighed down by that, but 40 lives versus human civilization would have been way worse. And Paranel is like, and I like that Paranel doesn't like back down about that. You know, she could be like, yes, we made a mistake. We shouldn't have done that to any twins. We should have been a hunt. Like, no, she thought that they, they thought they were the twins. They thought they were doing the right thing. Yes, they shouldn't have killed them, but like they thought they were doing the right thing for society and Sophie agrees. She's like, I would do the same thing. And the twins agreed. So she's like, you could do nothing and take over. And D will take over. You could help D and Hunt Tail take over. And you could help us. And maybe D won't take over. Like, they had no choice but to chase the twins because it was the only way to beat the Dark Elders. So I really appreciated that sort of resolution and that Paranel is not apologetic about doing the right thing. 
Yeah, which I like because I think Paranel's just a little bit better at, like, putting her foot down and explaining things. But also, I mean, it just goes back to, like, I mean, obviously, they're still, what, 15? Like, it might be a harder concept for them to grasp, but that's, like, when you're in a position of power, sometimes you have to make those tough decisions that it's, like, okay, we've got to search for the twins and we might have to sacrifice some lives, but it's going to help the greater good, which is just reality. Like, you can't save everybody always. Like, so I think... And it's not like they were sacrificing twins. Exactly. They weren't. Like, she says, like, how you just mentioned, like, the twins all did it willingly. They all went through the awakening process willingly, knowing the risks. And it's, like, this idea of that that's just sometimes how the world works. And, like, like we said, I think Sophie is starting to understand that. But Josh, Josh, I feel like, is still grasping for this idealistic idea of, like, well, maybe the Dark Elders can really help the Earth and save everybody. And it's, like... There's always going to be consequences and prices to pay. And it's just like, which one is going to have the least price? And to me, the option of sacrificing 40 pairs of twins, let's say, to save the world from being taken over by these powerful dark elders versus giving into the dark elders and then them eating humans and making humans slaves. I, I definitely would side with the flamels too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But anyway, that's pretty much where we leave the San Francisco plotline. And Aoife wants to talk to Prometheus, her uncle, to help get Kronos to grab Scatty from the past. And the Flamels want Prometheus to teach Josh fire. Yep. And we get one more thing very early on in the reading. The hook-handed man, he has blue eyes. Paranel said that. Where was that? Very beginning, like when they're in the bookshop and Paranel is thinking about the box and stuff like that. She mentions that the hook-handed man had blue eyes. Do they say the hook cannon man? Yes. Okay, I just missed it. <laughs> I mean, I we remember. haven't gotten his name yet, which I do remember, but obviously not saying that. Um, but we haven't gotten his name, so it wouldn't flag as much. It would just be like reading and be like, oh, hook cannon man, blue eyes. It was very quick moment, but I said I would track I it for you I guys. I stuck to my word. If you know who the hook cannon man is, there was another clue in this reading that we talked about on this episode. You can message me. I'm not going to mention what it. Clue? I, no, that one is like way like beyond D's masters. Hokanon man is like four masters, four steps above that. I didn't even notice it until we were recording the podcast. That's how like deep set this clue was. So okay, you're gonna have to tell me when we're when we stop recording because I have to know now because I obviously I didn't even catch the first clue. I'm not definitely not going to catch the big clue. But I, yeah, anyway, if you know who the Hokanon man is and you caught the clue, let us know. Anyway, well done, but I want to just quickly... <laughs> I love tracking I just want to quickly wrap up D's plot. So we know that D has a whole plan of how he's going to rule the world on his own, and he plans on getting the mother Archon, the most powerful Archon there is, and he's going to give her Josh with his pure golden aura, basically to distract her while he sets up spells to be able to control her. Yeah, Dia's crazy. His plan is to waken Koatlaku, the mother of the gods, and she's gonna he's gonna feed Josh to her so that he and Virginia can get her to help kill the gods. Like there are so many ifs in this plan. It's a crazy, crazy plan. But it's like we said, Josh Dia's desperate. He's gone off the deep end and he's gonna yeah, be going. Yeah, he has nothing crazy. to lose at this point. Yeah, he has nothing to lose. I wanna wrap up my favorite character, Niccolo. Excitingly, we find out who his master is. His master is Aten, and he was King Tut's father in this world. Yeah, I didn't know who that was, so I am still very confident that I will not know who Dee's master is, because I read this and I was like, yep, I don't know who that is, so I'm definitely not going to know who Dee's masters are. Wait, you didn't know who Aten was? No, I told you, because you were like, oh, Egyptian, like, I don't know anything about Egyptian. That the only... The only connection I had was You've like, never I heard know of Akhenaten? Who, no, I was like, I know who King Tut is. And I was like, oh, so it's his dad. But I would have, like, that. that's the only relation I have. Okay, so we clearly need to read Children of the Lamp. Akhenaten, come on. No. Well, anyway, Aten, super evil. And he was really known for revamping the Egyptian religion because Egyptians kind of had a very monotheistic, I mean, a, mo- a polytheistic approach. Like, they had the sun god and the cat god. And Aten basically, or Akhenaten, basically changed the god, the belief system to just worship Aten and the sun. He kind of made Egypt, Egypt almost polytheistic for a little bit. Like, he was a tyrant. Anyway, 
we find out that Kulkul Khan or Quetzalcoatl, he's going to spare Machiavelli's life, but we don't know what is going to happen to Billy. But I don't think he's going to kill Billy, right? No, I don't think so either. I think it was just a dramatic cliffhanger. Okay, good. And finally, let's wrap up Francis, which we finished with a really cute moment of Palamides basically saying that Francis, Shakespeare, and him are all brothers now, and they're on their way to see Palamides' master to bargain with him to bring Joan and Scatty back. Yeah, you know me, I'm not an emotional person, but the Palamides monologue, like, made me misty-eyed. I was, like, on the train, you know, just NJ Transit life, and I was, like, getting a little teary, and I just thought it was really moving, especially because they're immortals, so they're already very lonely. Their social circle is so small, they have to watch everyone they know and love from their original life die, so they basically live in isolation. So the fact that they feel this, like, kinship with each other is really, really beautiful. Yeah, that's why I I did really like that part, and it was a perfect place to end, and a perfect place to end the episode on such a high note for once. So for we, once. <laughs> so we're going to be finishing the Necromancer for next week. So go ahead and read to the end of the book if you're reading with us for next week. Yeah, stuff is about to hit the fan. We didn't have very many events this reading, so I think that next reading, it's gonna go crazy again. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do think it goes crazy. If you do have any predictions, theories, questions, or you have Latin phrases you want me to dump into the episode, or you know anything about the hook-handed man, you can always stay in touch with us on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there. Get in touch with the network itself on Twitter, at joinnerdparty, Instagram, at the Nerd Party, facebook.com slash nerdparty. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, at cesheeland. And I'm at AsiaBonia on Twitter and at Asia.Bonia on Instagram. If you enjoyed this, make sure that you rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends. And of course, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss us next week. Yep. Hit that subscribe. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.